there was a an onion article that came out years ago and <laughs> it was um google announces plan to destroy everything that it cannot catalog Welcome to the show. This is the Bot Brothers AI for Educators. I'm Mike Pearson. My Pat Burns. We have, um, I think, I think this is a unique show this week. We, um, Pat and I, are in a book book club um, with a bunch of other uh, um, teacher friends of ours. And uh, months ago, six months ago or so, we we'd read uh, a book by Ray Naylor. Um, Who's uh, a, a mostly, I guess, a sci-fi, science fiction writer? The book we read was uh, uh, "The Mountain and the Sea," um, that we we'll talk about in a little bit. And Ray has a new one out called "The Tusks of Extinction." Um, if you haven't guessed, we have Ray on our show today. He's um, he's got all kinds of stuff uh, published. He's got short stories. Um, the Washington Post called. Uh, Mountains in the Sea, a poignant, poignant mind-expanding debut. Slate called it a wonder, wondrous novel. We thought it was a fantastic book. There's octopus in it, um, an AI, but a, of a different sort. So we are really excited to have Ray on the show. He, he's also, I, I'm going to ask you to probably explain it with the, the diplomacy job that you work for on the U.S. You've been in the Peace Corps, you've been in the Foreign Service, you've lived all over the world, um, and, and you have some ideas and uh, opinions on AI, I do believe. And I think Pat and I are both really um, kind of interested because you are out there writing books. And then we have these AI systems that are also um, creating words on a page, too. So we're interested in those opinions. So, Ray, um, can you fill us in a little bit about the, um, the, the the other work you do besides the writing? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a foreign service officer. That's my that's my day job. Uh, I joined the foreign service in 2010 and my last uh, posting before returning to the U.S. was in, in Kosovo, but I've also been in uh, Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan before that, and my uh, first posting was in Vietnam in Ho Chi Minh City, and that's that's where I was on the Kondal Archipelago, which is where the mountain and the sea is set. And then before the Foreign Service, I was working for American Councils for International Education, and I worked for them in Afghanistan, in, in Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, and uh, before that, I was a Peace Corps volunteer uh, with Mr. Burns in Turkmenistan, actually, 2003 to 2005 for me. And um, yeah, so I have basically lived overseas with some breaks for language training and some other things since 2003. And I came back in 2022. I was on detail to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, their Marine Protected Areas Center. And uh, right now I'm at the George Washington University as a visiting scholar. And yeah, that's um, that's me. We were chatting a little bit before the show about how I'm adapting to, to life or not adapting to life back in the in the US. But that's pretty much pretty much me. I've written since I was 16. Oh wow. So uh, and pretty seriously, actually, after about 16. So I first published I published my first short story when I was 19. I published a novella like a, as a separate book when I was 25 or so. I had stories in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine and stuff when I was still oh, wow. in yeah. the university. And then, you know, I moved I moved abroad for the Peace Corps and um, 
have a big publishing gap, but it was mostly caused by not being able to submit anything from overseas because most of that submission process is reliant on the mail and uh, you have to have self-addressed stamped envelopes and all this other stuff. And I, I actually had this barrier for years where I just really couldn't keep up my, my magazine sub, uh, submissions and all that kind of stuff. But I started publishing in science fiction in 2015 in Asimov's with a story called Mutability. And ever since then, I had maybe two or three stories a year in professional magazines, up to seven. Actually, I had a few year, a few really um, productive years. But then The Mountain and the Sea came out. Uh, I finished it, finished it at the end of 2020, and it came out in October of 2022 and kind of changed everything since that was a big, big publisher. Um, Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Um, and, uh, and writing a book is an interesting experience because you have many thousands of times the amount of readers as you do for short stories. So you really get to see what people think of you. Because when you write a short story, you're kind of just dropping it into like a vacuum. But yeah, that's 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 basically me. So now I've got my second book coming out. It's a novella, The Tusks of Extinction. And then I have a third one also lined up getting lined up for publication soon that's, okay. that's, that's a lot <laughs> you live such a full life i it's funny because you mentioned the, the peace corps and i think you know about what i've done since then and i'm like it's not like i've done nothing but man um all the places you've lived and visited it's it's just astounding and really really impressive uh and just super cool um you know you you'd, you'd um to kind of go back to the mountain of the sea for a moment um there was an interview that I caught with you and, and another uh, gentleman, uh, I think it was in the past month. Um, and you had stated that your first novel was a, no a novel about octopuses. And, uh, and I think I recall reading it in that kind of vein. Uh, hmm. But then you said that when, when I think some of the AI stuff, specifically maybe ChatGPT came out, reviewers started writing about your novel as if the book was about, more so about AI, um, which I can understand why that would happen. Uh, but um, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, what I'm thinking about, like, what'd you, what'd you make of that whole kind of um, experience of kind of realizing, well, it's not really what you had in mind when you read, wrote the book, uh, but that, that people are kind of creating their own meetings out of that. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I'm just not sure, like from an author, author's point of view, I don't know, is that something that you enjoy to see, enjoy seeing, or that it's kind of taking a life on its, uh, on, uh, uh, on its own or, uh, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of curious what, where where that mind or where that takes you. Yeah, I. It was interesting when the, so when the book came out, and and for me the book was not per se a book about octopuses either. Like I mean I should say that it was it was marketed and it was definitely that was like a big attraction of of the book and that was that was a big thing that the the publishers were especially interested in. Um, I was interested in that in the octopus, but more as a tool to talk about consciousness, intelligence, mm -hmm. empathy, um, you know, the ecosystem, many other things kind of through the vehicle of talking about communicating with this species of octopus that becomes able to use symbols for communication. I, I think that, I think actually, in a way, the, um, when the sort of zeitgeist changed under the book, right? Like the book came out, was about octopuses in October by January, our reviews were being written that were mu very much focused on it as a book about artificial intelligence. 
one of the main characters is an is an android in the book and i think of course i mean that's one obvious reason why and there are many different kinds of ai in the book and i i maybe just um i would say the book is both of those things but the book is not really about artificial intelligence either the book is about other minds and other ways of of perceiving the world and and so you know within that kind of large framework you can put artificial intelligence you can put you know um non-intelligent sorting machines um uh you can put uh other animals and and, and that kind of thing and I, I just thought it was interesting that i think it was in december or january a review actually came out about the mountain in the sea which like has an octopus on the cover right yeah mm-hmm. they never mentioned the octopus at all and only mentioned the ai elements of the book and i thought that was really interesting that 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 you know a book that was sort of marketed around one idea people were so obsessed by that point with artificial intelligence and it was such a big deal that it was as if to them the book had been written about that i, I don't know how i feel about that stuff as a, as a as a writer i mean you know you are maybe of two minds as a writer you know part of me would like every single reader to just go into the experience of reading the book as if they had found it on like a beach somewhere with no cover you know and no indication of like where it came from and then just enter it completely blind and and just get what they got from it like without genre expectations or, or any of that but that's just not a world that exists there's this whole machine around publishing and marketing and getting people to to read your work and where they place you and where they you know pigeonhole you and uh and so that's that's not going to happen so on the other hand you realize that your work is going to go somewhere and you want it to have a broad enough appeal and I, i think that the you know the fact that it could be thought of as both of those things and both of those ways of looking at the book were correct vindicated me a little bit as a writer because I felt like okay well I've done a job of writing an open text which is what I had intended to do mm-hmm. something that the reader can enter into be in dialogue with and interpret to a degree I didn't want to write this kind of closed text where I've decided how you should think about everything instead I really wanted to have faith in my readers to to come to the book and kind of bring their own experiences and opinions to it mm-hmm. so it makes me think of um confirmation bias like once your once your mind gets on something you can't you can't you, you see it everywhere right so once the world's sort of thinking of ai like your book has it in there so that's the filter that you read it through yeah um, yeah and then I, I was also thinking a bit about um i may have just lost my thought but i was thinking um about uh in, interpretability or meaning making Right. And then how, you know, you, you've created this book and the story and there's, you know, the, the way you think about it. And then there's how the, the reader comes to it. Right. And then I was thinking about um, like large language model systems that people just read and then they, they, they not only do they interpret it how they want, but they can prompt it how they want to get the response. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you think about the large language models that are out there? Like the, the chat GPTs, the bards, the anthropics. Um, and the idea of people kind of being able to like make the system give them what they want. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think that 
I know I know you guys are 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 sort of forced to use in a way this term of this term AI, right? But I I would go back first of all to the term, right? Okay. I think one of the one of the unfortunate things that's happened is that we have a term that just fundamentally does not describe what we're talking about and instead drives people toward thinking about these things as something that they are not. I, I mean, those of us who have some kind of an understanding of how computer programs work and these large language models work, understand that the best metaphor, I mean, in my opinion, one of the best metaphors for ChatGPT would be that it is the most unimaginably complex thermostat that anyone ever invented being oh. that a thermostat is a self-regulating you know mechanism that can correct itself according to the feedback that it gets from its environment that's basically what a large language model is doing as well on a massive scale right, right? self-correcting managing its 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 inputs and outputs according to you know a feedback loop and in this case, what they what they refer to as a neural network, which is another really unfortunate metaphor, right, are just these really massively complex feedback loops that tell the large language model what the most statistically likely next word should be right. in the sentence. But they do this in a way that is so fundamentally complex and so interwoven, that really complicated thermostat, right, that people don't understand what's going on right that they they become kind of a black box i think if we had stuck with the term cybernetics and not pushed over into the term artificial intelligence decades ago and there was an, when there was an argument about what this was going to be called we would probably be in a mother in a much better place because cyber, cybernetics is about control systems right it's about centralized control systems and mechanisms for control and so what ChatGPT is to me is simply a, an excellently complicated um, control system for statistically predicting linguistic output, right? And having scraped the internet for all of our, all of our output, which is available on the in internet, which by the way, is not nearly all of human output and neglects massive amounts of what's out there, especially what's not in English, right? Especially what's not written down. I mean, there's so much missing from the internet that it's not reflective of humanity's knowledge. What is reflective is of this thin slice of knowledge that exists on on the internet. Just this tiny little piece of what this species has produced over its its history. So that's you know an interesting bias from the start, right? Well, isn't, isn't it fair to say, Ray, on that point, though, that that we that that in, in some respects we almost convince ourselves that it's everything? Yeah, it's not. That's right. That's right. We do, and 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 it's kind of so. Okay, there was a this is this is kind of a way to think about it, right? There was a an Onion article that came out years ago, and <laughs> it was um, Google announces plan to destroy everything that it cannot catalog. <laughs> right <laughs> and and it was and it was hilarious right in the way that the onion is yeah and then it happened 
and now it's not so funny. Where, where when you're saying it happened, uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Because what 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 the, the the Google search engine has changed in in its in its form over the years, right? Initially, the Google search in, engine was relatively neutral, and what you really got was you searched for something and you got whatever the internet had, pretty much in the order that it came up via popularity. That is no longer what happens right. at all. Instead, you get what Google has decided you should see for any number of different reasons, not necessarily related to popularity and not related to the accuracy of the information. And they've also added in chat GPT type, you know, AI elements into that search at this point. So that if you search me, for example, and you try to, and you just ask the like questions section where you can sort of kind of interact with their AI, You'll quite often get other authors' bios yeah. that have appeared on pages where I have appeared. Yeah. Because it can't determine whose bio it it's it's been scraping, right? Because my name is on that page and someone else's information is on that page, the page gets scraped and the information appears as mine. And so since I have a responsibility for protecting my image on the internet, I'm quite often, you know have to, I kind of have to Google myself, right? And look and see what's out there. And what I find is that more and more of the information is in error and more and more things are missing as well as it eliminates um, the lower level search results. So you used to be able to, for example, if you put in almost anything, you would get every single mention of that thing all the way down to chat groups, right? right? Mentioning it, 50 pages down on the on the search mm -hmm. don't get any of that anymore it's all gone so 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 google in a sense right in a sort of metaphorical sense has destroyed everything that it didn't care to catalog right mm -hmm. and it and is now offering us up a much more limited set of options just through the way that it's redesigned its its search engine and the same thing has happened for example if you go on to amazon Plug in the exact name of a product that you really that you actually want from an exact company, and it won't come up first, right? Yep. Instead, what'll come up first? Well, it's usually it's like sponsorship ads or something. Is that sponsorship? But then also sponsorship ads that are somewhat hidden, and then other alternatives that are more profitable for Amazon, yeah. and then many other things. And sometimes you would almost think that the thing you're looking for isn't sold on Amazon. Then you yeah. go two or three pages down and you find out that in fact it is right mm -hmm. so so these these ways that we have of interacting with with knowledge have also become far more manipulative than they were even 10 years ago and and so we really are in a in a weird place now where that like kind of like that onion article our access to knowledge is being manipulated and destroyed in some sense. And a lot of knowledge is being lost because one way to lose things, right, is just to not have a way to access the center of the haystack anymore. Mm, right. And that's, that's kind of what Google has done. So I used to be like big on just digging through the haystack. When I was a little kid, I really liked to go to the library and I liked to go to the stacks and, and, and find the book I was looking for. But then get distracted and look at the books above it and mm -hmm. below it, right? Yep. And, and nearby mm -hmm. and kind of wander through the stacks in this kind of, in, in this adventurous, you know, you know, way where you're just looking for these 
um, serendipitous connections. Yeah, right? that's how I go through bookstores. Actually, it's yeah, really go through. I'm like, I, I have a hard time when people give me books because I'm like, eh. I'm like, but if I can just wander and so, I'll stumble across something that piques my attention. Yeah. And the yeah, internet cool. used to be a space that we wandered in, but it no longer is. It's mm. really become hammered down into this. Like, here is what here is the internet that is profitable for the corporate entities that run the internet. And I'm not, I'm not like some left wing, you know, anti capitalist. I'm just saying that is literally what it is. Like, this is the internet which is profitable for us to show you has become the model, right? Well, and that's a very strange and different place to be. You know, the first the first inkling I got of what you're saying was, it, it oh my gosh, it was probably 15 or 18 years ago. <clears throat> and I was showing students how to search for, um, you, you used to be able to go to an advanced search on Google and you could tell it to just search EDUs, right? Or, and uh -huh. you could, and you can still do that, but you could eliminate like, all, like there's, there's a way to eliminate the dot coms. So you could do a search string and just click, you know, but don't include, you know, dot coms. You'd get rid of all the ads and they mm -hmm. buried that. You, <laughs> it was really easy. And then you had to figure out how to like do it through the, the yeah. prompt box. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they just made this more difficult to use. And I thought, well, why would Google not like not want us to be able to bury the dot coms and it's like oh because they're make money through advertisements right, right? so of course you get get rid of it so right i hadn't thought about that in a long time a, a couple episodes ago we talked to uh, dr goodland out of rutgers and we were talking about metaphors and uh, i'd not at all thought about thermostat and systems and control um and that's a different it's a it's a it's a different metaphor than how i've been thinking about large language models and I, i've kind of had an ongoing problem with uh personifying anthropomorphizing mm -hmm. like all the language that that, that goes around that mm -hmm. um i think i posted something on social media and more people were like what's your problem you know <laughs> i think my problem is with an english teacher um right and then there's this old robert frost essay that i or or, or talk that i've referenced before and it's it's education by by poetry and it's really about if you don't understand when you're in metaphor or metaphorical thinking, you don't mm. actually understand what's happening. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're kind of saying it's the wrong metaphor for how we're thinking about this. It's more like a thermostat. Yeah. Right? And so if you don't, if you're not thinking it's like a thermostat, if you're thinking it's it's like something else, then you're thinking about it in a way that only gets you so far. It's useful to a point before it breaks. Right. Um, right. No, that, so, that's a, that's a really that's a really really good way of looking at it because I, I feel like when you look at the the way that the human brain functions, I mean, metaphor and metonymy and all of these literary sort of tropes that we have, those are also the functioning of the human brain. Like the, the human brain really reads the whole world via these metaphors. And so as soon as you introduce something like artificial intelligence, a mm -hmm. term that implies that we've created minds, people start thinking of them as minds. Whereas mm -hmm. if, I, if I said like, if I say, you know, sophisticated linguistic thermostat, right? <laughs> it actually gives you a much better, a, a really a much better metaphor for what this is, because that is what it is. It's a sophisticated linguistic thermostat. You're okay. never going to sell anything, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> So you're never going to sell anything with that name. No, yeah, exactly. And I and I can't panic people into thinking that the problem is that it's going to become sentient. 
right? Right. Linguistic thermostat. Um, you know, because I mean, what's really interesting, and this also goes to like, well, poor education, right? Is the idea that people don't understand things like that that have been solved a long time ago. For example, you know, the whole the the Chinese box problem, you know, could you translate Chinese into English without thinking, right? And like like could a person basically if you had a person and a Chinese character came into a box, right, on one side, and they had a dictionary with what the character, you know, was matched up to, to its word in English, and they pushed the English word out of the other side of the box, you would think, right, that the person inside the box who was doing this knew Chinese and English. But in fact, they don't need to know anything, right? They just need to execute a mechanical process mm -hmm. by matching one thing with another thing. And so what people are not understanding is that this thermostat is a, regula a regulating system for exchanging tokens, right, according to a statistical likelihood. And because they don't understand those, those things, it becomes reasonable to think it's going to become Skynet. And then it becomes very easy to distract people from the real issue. And the real issue is more like, you know, do we really want middlemen not interested in the values involved with cultural production to be dictating what the tools are of that production and how they're used, right? I mean, do you want Elon Musk and, and people like him to be the ones who control the way books are written in our culture? And the answer is probably no, but people aren't talking that much about those pro problems. And I think part of the reason is that they're they're kind of distracted by this whole idea of these things becoming alive, right? Well, that, yeah. that, that's maybe part of it, Ray. But I, you know, there was, um, you know, what where it is that you you had that Time article recently um, was the the AI and the rise of mediocrity. There was that line in there where you said AI thrives when our need for originality is low. Our demand for mediocrity is high. That that kind of struck a chord with me, if only because it seemed to me that more often than not, the masses, so to speak, or, or the you know, I guess masses of society prefers mediocrity. Mm -hmm. and, and it sounds like what, not only just right now, but um, in your article as well, your essay on time, that you're saying, well, that's just not that is not good enough. We have to be able to um, provide spaces and avenues for uh, for 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 higher quality uh, outputs. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if there's a follow-up or a question to that so much. It's more of just, I, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe what you just said about AI and people worrying about Skynet is maybe one thing, but I think it's also this sense of, you know, where we seem to be okay with with less than in a way, yeah. with mediocrity. Yeah. I think that's a significant problem too, and that's that seems to pervade everything in culture everywhere. Um, yeah, yeah, it really does. And you know, the the AI. A uh, piece that I wrote for Time started out as a very as a very different piece and and evolved over over some months. But one of the things that I was, you know, interested in exploring and I kind of explored for myself while I was writing that piece was this idea that all mechanization, in a sense, is the reduction of the unique to the mass produced and and the mediocre. Right? Um, it's it's just a part of the process but the the question that we should be asking ourselves is 
what is it of value to mechanize and what is it of not like of no value to mechanize or what might be damaged by being mechanized and i can really mm -hmm. really simple example we do not need artisanal cars right? <laughs> what do you say we, an artisanal car i was just thinking about cheese in cars right? i don't think i think, mean what, what do you mean by that do you mean like like i was thinking portlandia but like we don't we don't need we don't need a bespoke car tailored to your individual specific you know needs right. and completely unique to you right we need well like well-functioning well-designed automobiles that are produced on mass so that everyone can have Papa, good good cars just a second i have a, I have fine, a break let me just deal with this for a second you're all good you're all good well, I, you know, as, as Ray's kind of certain that out, you know, there was this line in his book um, that actually is kind of circling around a lot of what we're talking about. So in the mountain, the sea, which I, I to our, our listeners, it is really, really good. And, and I don't say that as, as as an old friend of Ray's. I don't say that as, um, you know, somebody who's just, you know, having him as a guest, like it is just really well written. And there's some there's some really kind of poetic moments that I really love. But there's this one part it, at the beginning of each chapter. He has these epigraphs. Mm -hmm. um, it's like kind of quotes, if you will, and a lot of them stood out to me. And so I was like going back to buy my my book because I haven't read it since probably last January. And uh, in any event, so uh, this one I'm going to read uh, that again kind of circles to or seems to kind of connect to everything we're talking about here. There's this character named Dr. Ha Win, um, and the character says this. He says, "Not only this is a quote, so not only do we not agree on how to measure or recognize consciousness in others." But we are also unable to even quote prove uh, end quote it exists in ourselves. Science often dismisses our individual experiences, what it feels like to smell an orange or to be in love as qualia. We are left with theories and metaphors for consciousness, a stream of experience, a self-referential loop, something out of nothing. None of these are satisfactory. Definition eludes us. Um, you know, I read that. I guess reread it. I'm thinking about the 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 sense that so AI is really kind of this mechanistic system, right? And yet it by saying it's artificial intelligence, or as Mike, you're using the word like as we anthropomorphize it and try to make it seem like human like, it just it just never will be. Uh, it can never match or ever gives a sense for, again, like what it smell, what, what it's like to smell an orange or to be in love, as, as Ray points out in his book, um, these, these kind of, uh, I guess, temporal things, you know, these sensory things that, that we experience. What is it like to, to hear, um, you know, live music? You know, what is it like to, to touch, um, you know, or, or to pet your own dog? Like, it can't mm -hmm. capture those things, and it can try to explain them, but it just doesn't, it doesn't really do the job. It's so... Um, incomplete. And, and I think that that's where, you know, people who are advocating for AI as if it's like going to solve everything, it just isn't. It, it is, it, it is, uh, it, it seems to kind of like give us a sense of humanity, but it's not humanity. And there's a big difference there. Um, and so I don't, if, if Mike, if you have any sort of kind of thoughts on that, but that's, that's where I, I, I mean, I, I'm impressed by what AI can do, but I do also have to recognize that it has some severe limitations, which is what Ray seems to be pointing out for us. And I think it is worth just acknowledging, because even though we do this podcast and we think it's kind of fascinating, 
um, it's not the same thing, you know, is, is, you know, giving your mother a hug, you know, it, it can describe it, <laughs> but it's not going to be the same. Um, and it never There's probably an app for that though. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right? I will it. give a hug now. Right. Um, I, I, I am what? back by the way. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I was back in, I was back in time to hear some of those nice things, uh, that, that, uh, that you, <laughs> you guys said about me. Uh, no, I, I actually think Patrick, I think, I think you're sort of onto one of these big one of the big problems with AI and one of the problems with maybe the way that we're thinking about how one would go about creating artificial intelligence. And these are two really fundamentally different things, right? There are people out there work, working with cybernetics and large language models and, and that kind of thing. And there have been historically people also trying to create machines that think, mm -hmm. right? That don't just mm -hmm. calculate, but that actually think. And one of the things that I, I that I think is most likely one of the most fundamental problems is that thinking evolved out of movement and being in the world. Mm -hmm. And without basing those systems in the world and in movement and, and in self-motivated movement towards some kind of future goal, you're probably never going to get to minds that can think anything like a, a human mind thinks. You know, I have a, a basic theory of consciousness. I call it kind of like a sketch of why I think consciousness exists. Not the like, not how is it constructed, not any of these really like dense questions, but maybe why it would have emerged. And my, my theory is this, is that life as it evolves on earth introduces this one thing, the moment that something becomes alive, it does a really strange thing to the world, which is that it flips causation. So before anything is alive, a rock rolls down a hill because of physical forces, but it doesn't roll down a hill in order to get to the bottom. Mm -hmm. But everything that is alive down to the simplest unicellular organism does things in the present moment in order to elicit a future state for itself and this is what you, we call a big big jargony phrase like forward oriented ontology right or future oriented ontology where you you are doing something in this moment for a reason but that reason is a future reason and it can be just momentary right like i'm a spider hunting prey and I'm jumping and I'm calculating my trajectory so that I can eat right this this prey and I I have a vision of why I'm doing this in the sense that like like life all of the systems are life of life are are calculated to sustain life but sustaining means having a future state right so a rock is not concerned with its own existence but everything that is alive is concerned on some fundamental level with its own existence and that's really the difference between it between us so if you look at that that sense of trajectory and how it might grow you think what do you need in order to elicit a future state you need to know where you are you need to know where you were just a second ago because you have to have to have trajectory and you need to know where you want to go where you intend to go at some minimal level right think of bacteria sensing sugar in a direction and then the flagellate you know moving the bacteria toward that food source right there's some 
there's some impulse, some directional impulse to get somewhere, right? Mm. And this is the really unique thing about life is that nothing before life wanted to get anywhere unless you believe that the, the universe itself is mind-like, right? If, if you think of, of pre-life as just being physical forces, nothing wanted to be something, right? Or wanted to get somewhere. It just got and was. Right. Life strives. And so as you kind of emerge into these more and more complex systems, you get, for example, I would, I would posit that a wolf spider, right? Which has to hunt in many different ways, probably has a consciousness of some kind, some sort of decision-making mechanism that is more complex than an orb weaving spider, which weaves a web virtually out, out of a program, right? Um, and then um, an ape that has to live also in a cultural system, right? In a troop and survive and, and, and know where it ranks amongst the other animals in its, in, you know, in its troop, how to do things, et cetera, becomes more complex about, and when it starts to imagine future states, they aren't physical states anymore, right? Something has changed. When it enters, enters into a little bit of culture, it starts to imagine itself as being slightly up the rung, right, of, uh, of the hierarchy, or maybe making friends and allies and doing other things. And there's still, the metaphor is still physical, right? It's still about getting there. It's still about the sort of future position and positionality, but now it's about positionality in these big complex cultural worlds. And so, but the fundamental problem is that all evolved from being in physical space. It all evolved out of the body and movement and metaphors for that movement, right? And it all involves, it all involves being a real part of a real world. And when you just have this program, right? It's just not going to get there. And the only future-oriented ontology it has is what it borrowed from the people who designed it. It doesn't have any desire. It doesn't strive, right? And therefore, it doesn't really have any sense of trajectory or reason or, or any of those things. And that's all missing. All of that is missing. And then all of the qualia that come along with being in a real world that has that has real chemical impact on you, on your body, right? That has real emotional impact on your body. All of those things, all of that is stripped away. And what's left is really nothing, nothing but calculation, nothing but the same things that would go on you know, in any unthinking system. It, right? Ray, it's interesting you bring that up because in, in a more practical kind of, or not more, but in a practical sort of way, this sen sensibility reminds me, takes me back to last Friday and I was at a, a, at a meeting where we're doing curriculum maps, what have you. And uh, for whatever reason, I felt like I had to get a soapbox with somebody at our district office. And it's somebody I used to work with and like, we're all finding courage or whatever. But I was thinking about how, um, you know, there's always this push within our district to uh, teach skills, right? It's always, it's skill, 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 skill. But that's all fine and well, you know, it's it's a quantitative thing. You can kind of, you know, you can tally up, find whatever. But what what happens is it, it seems to me at least in our discipline is that it, um in education at least within our department that it, it is therefore kind of stripped away the 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 like valuing um um you know the, these qualitative sort of metrics or measures mm -hmm. um and and that is a significant problem because it led to essentially for years our one of our or some of our courses have lacked an, an identity mm -hmm. um and and it and it occurs to me so like we we used to have a, a, an American literature course and then it became so skills driven that like 
they could be anything you wanted, but then because it could be anything you wanted, it became nothing. Yeah. And, and it made me think about how when we're, we're teaching or shoot, I mean, just when we're reading a book, right? It's, it, we're, we're establishing a relationship with the ideas and, and maybe the author or the characters or just the story itself. But there's that human quality that you you can't you can't nor should you put a number to it and you know there seems to be a pretty big divide I think in the way that people conceptualize things uh, you know Mike uh, and I used to work with a with a, an assistant principal whose name I will not name but um, we got into an argument once about poetry and and I, I was just like look I said you know can you put a grade to a poem that a student makes you could but it really kind of degrades it. By doing so, because it's not about putting a greater point. He's like, but you can do that. I'm like, but that's missing the point. It's it's about yeah. what's the experience. Like, yeah. Where does it take you? How does it impact you? And, right. and you know, like any good novel or story would, right? That that that's that's what matters. It's not if you can kind of you know put a value, some some numerical value to it. like, eh, who cares about that? But like, does it move you? Does it help you understand yourself better? Does it help you understand the world better? And those experiential things are are really really hard to pin down, but it seems to me that there are there's almost like an ideological kind of like understanding when you get into these middle manager positions, mm-hmm. where they're just like no we just need to put a number to it as if like check it's good it's like but that's eh, it, it's not enough I just think it's 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 kind of um I I think it's, it, it diminishes our humanity in some respects so I, I, I think, think it's. It uh, I mean, I think it does too. And, uh, you know, like one great sort of philosophical exercise would be um, imagine, right, all of the data, all the quantifiable data that could possibly exist about you. Mm-hmm. Um, everything, everything that's available on the internet, everything that's in your medical records, every everything, every piece of data that has ever been collected about you, right? And now imagine yourself right how are those two things even remotely like one another (laughs) and how can we possibly abide living in a world that pretends like that collection of data is the same as that real person or or more important or more important right and the only thing that matters right i mean i graduated from high school with a one point Eight six GPA, and That's if you had looked at it, in its own right, Ray, right, <laughs> you, you got that tattooed on your arm. <laughs> yeah, um, I beat the system. <laughs> I mean, I, I I remember no, I remember this. So 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 one point eight six GPA, four hundred and four uh, hundredth in a class of of four forty, in my in my high school. And when I graduated, Mr. Q, my uh, vice principal in charge of discipline, who was very, very close to putting me in a in a reform uh, high school, but but managed to allow me to kind of graduate from from the high school I was in, called me into the office and he said, "Congratulations, Ray." Uh, I said, uh, "For what?" He said, "You graduated high school in three years. You missed so many days over these four years of high school. How <laughs> them up?" And it turns out that you only attended this high school for three years, but you still managed to graduate. So congratulations. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's and impressive. That that takes skill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I feel like if I had been just so, but this is the other thing that Mr. Q said to me in the in the office that day. And this is and this is the value of an educator, right? He looked at me and he said, you know what? I've cut you a lot of slack. And you know why? because I know you're going to do well. You're going to be fine. Mm. 
He's, he's like, you're going to go, he said, you're going to go on from here. There's going to be a system that's better for you and you're going to be fine. Mm. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I wish you well. And we never, we never had this antagonistic relationship. Like he felt that like there were things in my life going on that he could not understand. Right. Um, there were pressures, you know, on me from out, outside the school that were causing my uh, poor performance. Other stuff was happening and he maybe didn't have the capacity to deal with those things. But what he did have the capacity to do was, for example, not to remove me, you know, from the school and put me in the reform like high school, right, that we had in, in Fremont. And not to not to elicit all, all of the punishments that the system was capable of for a, for a you know, student that was like me. Um, you know, we had lots of conversations over over the years. I, another one I remember is, you know, I I skipped class. So I got Saturday school, then I skipped Saturday school. So I got suspended. Um, and then Mr. Q called me in the office and he said, why did you skip Saturday school? And I said, Mr. Q, I don't want to go to school on Wednesday. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to school on Saturday. Right. <laughs> and I said, look, I don't want to be here. You know, if you, if I cut school on Wednesday, you give me school on uh, high, you know, Saturday school. And then you say you're going to suspend me if I don't go to to Saturday school. That's a two for one deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so. Um, but the point being, like, behind all that, all the behavior issues and the and the poor performance and high school and all of those things was someone else, right? Um, and and indeed, I went on to to junior college. I went to Foothill Junior College. I was on the dean's list there, and you know, I, I was very rarely far away from a 4.0, and like very high performance for the rest of my my education. It turned turned out I just was a really bad fit for for high school, and the way that things were were done there. Mm -hmm. um, but I had some really good teachers along the way that just allowed me a little bit of slack, so that I could get through what they knew was a system that wasn't too good for everyone right that that really wasn't going to serve a kid like me well and uh I'm, I'm very grateful to people not perceiving me as data i wonder now you know if i would have done as well graduating now and being subjected to the kinds of like uh, more quantitative uh sets of of decision making um now if i would have survived it or not or maybe there are people like you guys who are still looking out for real people and not just the mass of data that like represents a student on the page i mean i just don't the, the thing the problem that i have with ai is is exactly this i don't see how ai is going to have that human touch that mm -hmm. thing that sees beyond the data to the real thing in the world that is a person. Mm -hmm. A person is not that collection of statistics. A person is, it's very hard to grasp, right? Right. It's really difficult for someone to say, okay, this kid, although he may be underperforming and maybe X, you know, clearly has something in him that is going to be, you know, good in another context. And all we have to do is just make sure that he gets out of here. And there's really nothing to be done for him, you know, except to kind of nudge him past the worst of it, right? And let him graduate 
with his class and get out of here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how is, how is AI going to help that happen? That would be my question. Like, how is AI going to solve these, these really nuanced real world problems? Because it's, it also has built into it all the biases that the people who designed it put there. And I don't feel like enough of those people are the kinds of people that Mr. Q was, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly not the CEOs of the companies. Uh, maybe some of the engineers are really interested in, in those really nuanced questions, but it's not going to make you a lot of, uh, of profit very quickly. Right, right. You know, it seems that it's a... It's really just a question of um, how you're going to define quality, right? Because right. like, like, like when Pat, Pat Pat's example of the poem, um, like it it comes down to the the quantifiable because, I mean, really, people can't really argue with it. You can you can just kind of say like, well, this is the quantity, this is the quantity, and then it uses the quantifiable to then try to assert that that is the the quality the quality of whatever happened, like the qualifiable, right? right? Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, you have an entire system designed right now for literature, right? You have this, this website, Goodreads, that basically reduces books to uh, a rating. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, of between yeah. one and five stars. And you're like, right. like, I'm sorry, like, like, is, is Hamlet a four star play or a five star <laughs> play? Is, is Hamlet four stars and Macbeth is four and a half stars or like would you give Macbeth five stars and I mean this is nonsense right like looking at literature that way makes no sense it's exactly what you were saying about oh, grading but Ray, in fairness, Romeo and Juliet's really a one star I think <laughs> I mean I feel like Romeo and Juliet gets two stars there are part of that there's, there's parts of that play that you know, despite the bad characterization and all the other, <laughs> are beautiful moments in Romeo and Juliet of pure poetry. But, but here, here's a tangential question: what What is Shakespeare's <laughs> best sci-fi play? Oh, sci-fi play. Oh, interesting. Is it? Is it? Are you going looking for like a punny title or something, or you're just <laughs> no? I, I I thought Tempest, but I was wondering what what Ray would think. Yeah, that's the first one that came to mind for me as well. Uh, and Tempest, actually, speaking of the mountain and the sea before, is uh, was one of the touchstones for the mountain and the sea. Um, and actually, the mountain and sea quotes from the Tempest several times yeah. in the book. There are little Easter eggs in there. Right, you know, Ray, right. I, I recall years ago, you'd, you'd mentioned, I think you probably said on Facebook, that you'd read every single Shakespeare play uh, yes. in like a short period of time. And you started to actually think and speak in that way. Is that right? Well, I didn't speak it that way because I knew better. But, oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I was I was actually able. So I, I spent a year just reading Shakespeare and pretty much nothing else. I read a few other Elizabethan um, play playwrights who were you know contemporaries of his, but um, Webster and 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 people like that and and Marlowe. But uh, mostly just reading Shakespeare, and I read all of his work. I had I was familiar with most of his work from before that, but yeah, by the end of the year, I could I could basically read a Shakespeare play, and it felt as if I was reading like in modern English. I mean, I mean, I, I completely was I was so immersed in his language that yeah, I could I could look at it and just understand the 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 Elizabethan era meaning of the words as if it was just as easy as, as to understand as a, as a modern word because there are a lot of 
you know, there's a lot of lost meanings of of, of yep. words. And, and one of the reasons why why Shakespeare is so difficult for for a modern reader is things like, I mean, it's it's an example from Chaucer, but you know, there's this part of the Knight's Tale where the knight says, "Mine is the ruin of the high halls, the falling of the towers and of the walls," and and it's a it's not a it's it's not difficult to understand what he's talking about, right? But what you miss is the nuance of the word ruin, right? Because you're actually supposed to, the image that Chaucer would have been going for in his time was the falling itself, right? And the state of having fallen. And it's a really neat, like, image, right? Uh, mine is the ruin of the, of, of the high house would have been identical to ruining, right? That he was the cause. Then you're also, so you're supposed to see him as the cause. You're supposed mm -hmm. to see the halls ruined in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to also witness the, fall all by hearing that word that mine is the ruin right and it has this 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 kind of unrepeatable nuance that's really contextual to the time in which it's being used and a lot of Shakespeare's words are like that you can kind of recover their meaning but you can't recover the feeling tone mm -hmm. of them right and yeah by the end of the year I feel like I was like feeling those plays <laughs> I mean uh it was it was an interesting experience but anyway Sorry, that's a that's a digression. It, it's a yeah, digression. It, it was, but fault. I had to ask. It's my fault. Sorry, Mike. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I I was just thinking about hip hop artists and rappers, and and they 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 do the same thing with their lyrics. Like I'm pretty convinced that the Shakespeare of today is um, a rapper, maybe maybe a sub rock. I don't know. Um, <laughs> just the the, the wordplay when you kind of examine what they're doing is like. And 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 you don't get it if you're if you're not in the world of that language, which I'm not. Right. So sometimes I have to look stuff up. It's like I'm reading right. Shakespeare because you right. know, middle aged guy reading, right. you know, listening <laughs> to new new rap, right? I'm like, well, I don't I don't know what that was. Um, <laughs> so I'm 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 I want I want to keep on going with the conversation, but I'm also we're up on um, we're up on about an hour, Ray, and so um, maybe we can have you back after your next book is out. I'd be happy um, to come back anytime. Um, it's 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 very enjoyable to talk through these things. I'm I'm really glad that, you know, Pat, you were saying you were saying earlier that uh, I've had this really exciting life, et cetera, et cetera. I just <laughs> want to say, um, I there's probably no one I have more respect for than than a teacher, honestly. And this this is not not just because you know I'm talking to teachers, but um, I feel like um, I can think of a few teachers along the way um, who really saved me. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one being Mr. Lotz, my fifth grade teacher who like really like, I felt he was the first teacher that I'd ever had who saw me and sort of understood who I was and, and really was like focused on bringing out the best you know, of that person. And, uh, and, you know, and then after him, I had several good teachers in, in, in high school, but then I had a couple of professors, especially Professor Earl Jackson at UC Santa Cruz, who just completely were able to change the way that I saw the world. And I dedicated, you know, I mean, the, the mountain and the sea back in the acknowledgements, I mentioned, I mentioned Earl Jackson, you know, but I should say, like, there's no more difficult thing, I think, in some ways than than to be a teacher and I people would ask me you know 
oh, have you ever thought about teaching? And I literally like recoil from this in horror because I know that I'm <laughs> so incapable of being the kind of person that it takes to be a good teacher. You know, like the, I taught in Turkmenistan and it was a wonderful experience, but those kids loved everything that came out of my mouth because I was an American. And, and it was the only time they were going to, you know, get to talk to some strange foreign creature, mm -hmm. right. And have this experience. And they, and they were, they were, it was easy and they kind of ruined me for it. But like trying <laughs> to teach in the, in the complex environment of like the American schoolroom right now, it just has to be fantastically challenging. And I, I just, I have to say like, my life may sound a lot more interesting, but I am sure that you have done a lot more uh than than i have that is of value in the in that 20 years um but you're not going to get the kind of credit for it that i will for what well I that do. is very kind ray we appreciate that um i, I paid him 20 bucks to say that before the show just so our listeners know <laughs> <laughs> i i i do appreciate it that that um uh the sentiments and the thought and that you expressed all that we, we do appreciate that um, I, I, I kind of like, I'm always kind of like, we're in this together, man. There's the teachers and there's the writers and there's the, the, the government workers and there's everybody, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we can be just a little more kind to each other as, as Pat is always pointing out. Um, yeah. I do want to, uh, leave us with your, your next novel, the tusks of extinction is uh, out January 16th, uh, in 2024, right? Yeah, correct. So this is a novella. It's a, it's a bit shorter than a novel. It's about the same length as like heart of darkness okay right um or i think it's probably around the same length it's a, a, a lot of a lot of like the literature you would have you would have read you know um a lot of classics are actually novellas that that we call novels but that's more of a commercial category now yeah. i love um, novellas. i think of it as a book right yeah but it not one book. not one that you look at and you go mm, i don't know if i want to do that yeah, exactly. So it's going to be much less intimidating in size. I know Mountain in the Sea was like a little bit on the intimidating side. And this is this is a sort of designed to be very compact. But I would also say like it is absolutely packed with story. So right. I don't think that anyone's going to come out of reading it and thinking that they didn't get a full book. Well, I <laughs> think, Ray, I, I think I, I got a science teacher in our building to want to buy it. So Awesome. Uh, early today, it came up in conversation, and and uh, she's like, "That sounds amazing." I showed her like the Amazon page. She's like, "Oh, I'm going to get that one." I'm like, "Yeah, you should. Why not?" Yes. But anyway, yeah, I would I would love to come back, and this is this has been great. Um, I mean, it's it's always good seeing Pat again, and uh, and uh, I'm always happy to to do these kinds of things, and uh, you know, I hope I hope some of what I said was intelligible <laughs> it's all it's all good it's all good um thanks for coming on the show ray wonderful this, ray. Is, Thank the, you uh, this is the bot brothers ai for educators i'm mike pearson uh, and uh, if you like that show please uh share it please like it please give it to your friends um you can you can check us out on our website or on the rss feed uh, the podcast is available everywhere um thanks for listening if you want to get in contact with us you can look for mr uh, pat burns facebook page or we got a, a twitter account that's up and running but uh that's the show for today and again ray thanks so much for coming on have a good one